0: No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, the podcast about our shared inevitable demise. I am your host, John Toyson, and this week I had the pleasure of having on guest Kevin Hansen. Kevin is a teacher from St. Paul, lives in Minneapolis, and he was absolutely a pleasure to have on the podcast. I really, when I first met Kevin, it was a little bit of a realization of, oh, this is what it would be like if I was really smart. And I got to basically pick his brain and talk to him and just figure out how does he work and what makes him different than me because I just felt there was so much of a kindred spirit there. Again, only much more intelligent and uh, much more well-spoken. <laughs> and so I suppose that's what happens when you go into the profession which you, know, you are bettering minds His is better than mine. So I got to get him to sit down on the podcast and talk about a whole variety of things. He was just really awesome to talk to all this stuff about um, where he grew up and how he ended up teaching, what his experience looking into philosophical ideas is. He's just really, like I said, just it's a lot of fun talking to him. Hopefully, it's as fun for everybody else to hear it as it is for me to talk to him just because it would just. We cover so much stuff that's not specifically death-related but is sprung from that well, and I think it should be pretty apparent as we go through the conversation that there's just a lot to unpack, to use that verb. Um, It just was really really informative for me, and I really took away some cool things. There's just a lot to go over. So uh, as always, I appreciate anybody listening, anybody out there with thoughts, comments, feedback, criticism, let me know. Uh, Like, subscribe, uh, you know, click whatever buttons you feel necessary in iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you find us, let us know. Um, send an email to yourdead2 at gmail.com or find me on Twitter or Instagram, you're dead 2 I'm usually posting horrible memes on Twitter or on Instagram about uh, everybody's shared inevitable demise just because little cartoons make me laugh. you got to find something to get you through the day. But um, I want to make sure that I'm open to any kind of ideas and feedback that I'm getting from people or suggestions for guests. I've got some cool things coming down the pipe here. So I'm really excited for what's coming. And I'm just very happy, and very proud of what we've got so far. So again, thank you so much for listening. It's always an honor and a privilege to do this. And uh, hopefully you enjoy. Thanks. (music) And there's no big preamble, so we're already up and running. Cool. So I have with me today Kevin Galvin. Hanson. Hanson? Yeah.
1: Kevin Hansen.
0: Oh, yeah. so Brianne? Oh, okay. Yeah. So
1: Brenna kept kept the Galvin, but I'm Kevin Christopher on Facebook. So a lot of people that don't know me well will send me things in the mail. Saying uh, Kevin Christopher. Like all of Brenna's relatives think my last name is Christopher.
0: <laughs> Literally two seconds in and I've already given incorrect information. Yeah, no I've reports. made wrong assumptions. That's no, all right. I'm mansplaining <laughs> to you. Um, okay, so if you don't mind, tell the people a bit about who you are. Like what's kind of a broad view of Kevin?
1: Yeah, so um, I am in my mid-30s now, which that I guess 34 is mid 34 is mid-30s. That's sort of what we're looking at. So I'm a, I'm a guy, white dude, mid-30s. I'm a teacher. That's a big part of me. Uh, I teach middle school English and high school English. Um, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Brenna. We've got a dog named Milo. We got three chickens that were an impulse pet that we've been taking care of. They're about a month old. Um, so it's been exciting. But um, I guess my, my interests have always been in things that are big. Um, I've not had a ton of tolerance for small talk in the past. Um, And I think my way of adapting to that was to redirect as many conversations as I could towards things that I was more interested in, um, which was a nice little natural filtering mechanism in a lot of ways. But um, so I think about... You know, directing those and especially in my my work with kids, like trying to soften that fall from childhood to abstract thinking and um, give them the chance to be more deliberate with the ways that they're thinking so that they don't have to spend as much on therapy as I do. (laughs) (laughs) Like if you can get to them during adolescence before they're set in back Mm -hmm. um, when there is so much plasticity in the brain is so much easier to change. um, There's just a tremendous opportunity there. I think that um, is what I don't want. I don't know if it initially drew me to it, um, but it definitely as I I've been teaching now, this is my sixth year. um, So as I sort of reach that point, um, I've been thinking a lot about like, how do you how do you build and help support kids to be successful in a world that's really unknown? Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: I was going to make a joke about the fact that you want to get to them while the Play-Doh is still soft. But oh, then yeah. Really, you're, you're not wrong at all. It's neuroplasticity. Right. Well, That's no, a great metaphor. <laughs> thoughts are still <laughs> forming. The brain is still yeah. moldable a bit. You can get there mm-hmm. and hopefully set some good groundwork. Yeah. Is that path for you from your own childhood experience to where you ended up as a teacher? And I don't mean ended up mm-hmm. by uh, default, but I mean right. ended up right. like where fate has led you to this point. Was that a pretty clear path for you? Or was that something where you wandered a bit and said, you know what, I think this is actually kind of what I'm being called to?
1: It was a clear path that I resisted from the moment it became clear to me. Really? Yeah. So I had always enjoyed learning, um, but I didn't like school. And I had a couple of teachers that are sort of these monuments on my life, in retrospect now that I look back on as having uh, a tremendous impact and I think as I became an angsty teenager and started thinking about uh, the morbid realities of reality is when I decided that like to fight against this inevitable demise, the the thing that we can do is through creation or through touching people's lives and helping, just leaving an imprint whenever possible is the best way to avoid death. And it's, I think, the sole urge to create for most people, even if they don't know it yet. So I had focused more on, I'd wanted to like move out to Los Angeles and write for television. I love TV and um, media. I was an early internet adopter who spent like all my time online reading and learning and learning how to learn and learning how to teach myself. Um, so when I when I thought about it then, it was always like, well, I, I want to do these other things. Um, I want to try some things. So I didn't go into teaching right away. Uh, I went to college at the U and I'm from a small uh Town in rural Wisconsin, Hartford, Wisconsin. There were like eight thousand people that lived there.
0: I grew up on the far uh, side of the state, but I, that's very much my brand. I get that. Yeah, thing, yeah. What that's like.
1: <laughs> so I was just in a hurry to get out, and come to a city. I wasn't ready for college yet, so I went for a couple of years, about forty percent, mm. uh, and then eventually wasn't able to string it along any further. So, I lived back at home with my parents in Wisconsin for a little less than a year when I was 21. Um, and it was a, it was I was glad that I was 21 when I had to move back home because there, <laughs> n- there was nothing else to do. Um, yeah. So that was fortuitous timing, at least. Um, but yeah, I, I moved back up to the cities to go back to school. Still, I was at about 65 percent now. So making incremental improvements, but not ready yet. Um, I got a job at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis and managed that for a while um, and didn't really think much about anything. It was always like, well, yeah, you'll go back to school the entire time. This whole thing, too, is like, yeah, you'll go back to school and you'll you'll do this. Or if that fails, you could always be a teacher. And it was always that sort of like, well, but if that doesn't work, you could always be a teacher. Um, But then I never ended up (laughs) legitimately trying the things that I thought, um, and I began to learn about myself too that I just didn't have, um, it would be really difficult for me to learn how to exist in that highly competitive world. Um, I didn't participate in a lot of team sports and stuff like that, and I never had a real competitive edge. Um, And that's
0: not necessarily just because of team sports. There's certainly, and I want to get to where this is, headed towards because this is I can see where you're I think going with this but the idea that somebody who I would definitely consider a creative person there has to be especially going out for Hollywood that there would be this competitive cutthroat self-aggrandizing like I know that I'm better than everybody else in this room and I don't necessarily think that you've got the the cold Knife of the fuck you, everybody else. I yeah. think you have more of a compassion to your fellow human that you would be willing to say, There's merit in other people's work here. I think I could be somebody who's yeah, yeah. maybe I'm dead wrong.
1: No, but. no, no. I think you're totally right. And uh, the team sports thing was just like for first principle, the first thing that I thought of. No, and I fully get that. Yeah. And Brenna is incredibly competitive. And yeah. I am, I'm just not. And I knew that teaching in the back of my head too, is like, you know. I think that there are a lot of great teachers. I also think that I like the feeling of being kind of a big fish in a small pond. I'm comfortable there. And I knew that I would be good at it and would bring something to it that is relatively rare. Um, I mean, especially now, if you are versed in internet culture, you're in with kids like and that's the language they speak every day and it's terrifying um which is also part of the responsibility there too like how do you navigate everything that's there but um yeah the upshot is in 2010 uh is right around a couple years after i started dating brenna maybe a year and a half her mom's a teacher um and she's got a lot of educators in her family and i knew i had to go back to school and graduate if i was going to be able to pursue a long-term relationship with a successful partner, uh, <laughs> which
0: I wanted to do. She's a driven lady. She will yes. accept no slackers. Y-
1: exactly. So, and I knew all along it was something that I had to do eventually. So yep. um went back and for a while dabbled, thought about, like, I really wanted to be a professor is what I wanted to be. That was, like, my image of myself that I could rationalize that that was still, like, enough status okay. uh, that it would I'd be satisfied with that. You've
0: got but... a professorial air to you. You've got kind of a— When we went back to your place after dinner the other night, you definitely slipped on, you know, kind of a house sweater that you... Yeah, I like to
1: have a variety of house sweaters Mm to choose from, you know, something cozy that you can slip on. I get that. Yeah, I had elbow patches on a couple jackets. So it was definitely (laughs) like I was an affected teenager, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. So I'm I'm not sure. It's chicken or the egg thing. I don't know if it's a professorial nature or me faking it till I make it. But I still got to fake it because I didn't quite make it to that. But I'm happy with what I'm doing teaching kids. Um, Would like to go back maybe and be a teacher teacher someday Um, just because I've always loved theory. That was like the big sort of um, piece that fell into place when I went back to school that final time is that I got a grounding in the different paradigms and languages of literary theory and that was supporting my work and my cultural studies and um, sort of pop culture stuff that I was into And I, for the first time, could sort of see how all of those different things could all be fit together into one sort of encompassing worldview. Um, And then in Wisconsin with Scott Walker and uh, the the teacher (laughs) sort of controversy and some of the language I was seeing on social media from kids I went to high school with that had fantastic teachers. We were in classes together and they're complaining about how much health benefits teachers get. And it's always, they have something I don't, so take it away from them, and not the question of, they have something that I don't, why don't I have that too? Right. Um, So I started to think that, you know, at the very least, I could fight against that narrative that I was seeing of people criticizing teachers and um, saying that they would phone it in. Because, yeah, I had a couple teachers that definitely phoned it in.
0: Um, But, you know. (laughs) It's a job that can beat you down if you don't have the right
1: disposition
0: for it but i think it shows your nuance and formality of thinking that you have those mindsets where i (laughs) my knee-jerk reaction is yeah those uppity teachers with all the you know like how dare they ask for more i just make glib jokes about it and you've got an actual understanding of this is why that this is a broken dichotomy here this Mm -hmm. is not really okay so yeah i get first of all it was incredibly elucidating when you first explained no i break it up into chunks and i do you know i I'm paraphrasing from what you said here, but like five mm. minutes of, uh, um, lecturing, and then you know break into small groups and do stuff, or then they do individualized things, and you go back to it, and you you break it up into these chunks, and that was such a dumb like scales falling from my eyes like oh mm. you are doing like a job and it's a thing where you can plan and have a lesson plan like i just mm. i got anxiety yeah, just we don't thinking. see that part yeah um you make it seamless
1: I, yeah and that's what i like so much about the i went to the teaching program at the u and it was the first year they had like done this pretty radical redesign of the program to situate it in a definite like marxist framework and radical pedagogy and showing like you know, if we want to teach students of color to be successful, we need to be equipping them with these strategies to work within these codes and to change and dismantle them. If you're a white educator, that's your responsibility and how you can use your privilege in that way. Um, So that was really helpful to have it situated that way, because it was all just kind of The literary theory helped me see things in blocks. Like I really like structuralist and formalist critique. So I I could see like a really big picture uh, about the way it all fit together. So – Well, the world is chaos. You're able to kind of put little – like given
0: our own devices, even if you didn't have city planners setting all this crap out, it would still – people tend to like have their little homestead and like we make order out of the chaos. So just given nothing but freedom to say, teach these kids literary theory – you're able to break it up into like, well, here's a section, 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 mm-hmm. section. that makes it digestible and comprehensible right. and they get the bigger. I want to ask about the TV thing, but we'll come back to that. Uh-huh. Because for me, what it sounds like for you, coming to the understanding of recognizing your natural inclination to teach, it's almost as though... Superman was trying to do a bunch of different things, like, well, uh, you know, I've got the investigative journalism thing going. I've got the romantic thing with Lois Lane. I mean, I guess I could fall back to this crime-fighting thing if this works, but like, yeah. it just—it's so <laughs> ingrained of like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't think I was told at any point that you were a teacher before we first met, and that when we had dinner that night. Uh-huh. But then, as it became apparent through the conversation, it was like. I bet this dude's a teacher, and mm. then you started talking about it, and then halfway through, the end I go, "Wait a minute! So, what do you teach again?" Mm. And you like literature theory, and they go, oh, oh, yep, all of that scans 100.
1: Curious, what what makes you say that?
0: Mannerisms, <laughs> your um, your impeccable language, the fact mm. that you the fact that you are asking me what makes you say that like that's the <laughs> language right there. That's the trick. That's the you do. You've got that air of somebody who wants to bring out the best in people, and. You do just feel like somebody who can kind of not play a person like an instrument, but you just—I like, first of all, just as a person, I like talking to you. Like, I just want to do this again and again. But I don't know. You just—it's the same reason I can tell you're not a, a welder. You know, like yeah, it's yeah, yeah. from some giveaways. Yeah, what I'd recognize in the best of the teachers that I'd had, where I'd recognize what they would bring out in others mm-hmm. and how you approach things, and certainly your vocabulary is nothing short of uh daunting
1: i'm an english teacher <laughs> this is your business it man. to be you know
0: good <laughs> so, okay um yeah. writing for television specifically yeah what got that bug in your ear <sighs> love of tv
1: yeah i love i love tv mm-hmm. i loved it when i was young i uh remember uh the revelatory feelings when like cartoon network came to television oh and God. i could like there was just always something on um and weird shit too that nobody really, else was doing I, the, Adult first, swim. I, I, the first time i saw space coast coast to coast which i think started in like 96 or 97 yeah but being 11 or 12 years old and um knowing Tangentially about Radiohead and stuff and seeing Tom York singing a song called "Knifing Around. This is cut, <laughs> cut, 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 cut. cut. Um, so Space Ghost and all of that, this thing that I knew was very funny, otherwise they wouldn't have put it on TV because it's so weird, um, but also feeling like I didn't understand why it was funny, but knowing that this is something that I didn't understand, but like other people saw fit to put it on TV made me really want to get it yeah uh, and put that time it's like seeing something get best new music on pitchfork and you're like well i'm go- i'm going to i'm going to like this yeah like right. this has got all of the
0: hallmarks of everything i love <laughs> right. i have to find out more about it. it was that was specifically something seeing what was the just cult tv mm-hmm. just right there out in the open and that was at a time when there were still i mean nothing existed like it is today no streaming or no nothing there was just If it was on TV, millions and millions of people were seeing it. So for Cartoon Network to do that, it was just insanity.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the commercials I love too because it was just like so low rent in the early years and like almost every other commercial was two minutes long, which is how you know you're not in like prime demographic territory. Yeah. uh, When they're not splitting it up into all 30-second spots and you can get that two-minute one. Yeah. Um, So yeah, I mean, I remember um, another teacher that – I had I took a mass media class in high school, which I was really very formative. Um, where we learned about like corporate ownership and the fact that there were just a handful of companies and what the implications of that would be. I remember him bringing in two di- like a time in a newsweek cover of O.J. Simpson and how much darker they had made his skin in one version than the other. Yep, um, which really opened me up early to understanding and getting comfortable with the stickiness of truth and things Mm -hmm. it was never something I was very attached to to begin with Mm. Um, so it was easy to shed eventually Um, but I wrote a paper for that class that was all about like my family and how my little sister and my mom and my dad and my brother and myself all measured our time in television shows and I forget exactly like what the details were of it but it was the first time that somebody told me that I was a good writer which felt really good, and he read it to the class, which was embarrassing. I told him that he sh- couldn't use my name for it, and then after class when he read it, and I saw how my classmates reacted to it, I said, well, tomorrow maybe you could just mention that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wouldn't kill you to credit the source. Yeah, the... yeah. yeah I mean, right. but, uh, and he told me years later that he kept it and like still uses it as an example when he does that assignment. Um, so that was – that was cool. It was always like media and internet and, and video. Um, I loved movies, too. Television writing just seemed like a fast, uh, like, adrenaline-packed lifestyle for some reason. Well, it used to be very disposable. It
0: yeah. used to just be, I mean, the example I always love is they would, when the Incredible Hulk TV show is being made, they would just give them green shoes because the camera <laughs> might pan down once in a blue moon and you'd see a green shoe for a second, yeah. but, like, who cares it goes out on the airwaves and it's gone baby yeah. like it was a very like you have to produce it fast quickly and there's a work ethic to it and mm-hmm. it's churn and burn for that kind of stuff yeah but yeah. you just did that something it was that you just didn't have the pieces of the path for fate fall the right way where you just didn't end up going that route or it,
1: it was a bunch of things i did a lot of acting in high school i sure. was uh, really interested in that and for a while i fancied myself as like well maybe i'll study acting and I auditioned for uh, the program at the U and I didn't get into it, but they liked me and like I got like in contact with some of them about like the other theater. They're like, well, not for acting, but what about this? And I knew I was going to the U anyway, so I thought about it. But my brother is an actor and he's a, a touring actor right now in a, in a touring company and he's been on Broadway and stuff. So I could see he him going through that uh, and just how – Demoralizing it would be to me, like all that rejection, yeah, because I had carefully crafted my life to never have to confront rejection. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah, and that's connected to why the fate didn't line up, too. I just, I didn't, I'm not comfortable taking those sorts of chances. I have to have a really clear outcome to a decision,
0: okay. When you were raised in Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. um, again, that's my jam. Those are my people. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, Was that – were you brought up in any particular faith? Was that part of your upbringing?
1: Yeah. um, No, there was always talk of a Christian God, and Jesus and God I just thought were the same for a long time. Um, There was not a lot of nuance to it. My mom was a Jehovah's Witness when she was a kid until she turned 18. Oh wow. Um, I think, I, I used to know all this stuff, but I think you sort of get like a, a rumspringer type thing like when you're 18 or like that's the first time you can really make that choice or they want you to make that choice. Um, mm-hmm. But my grandma was still a Jehovah's Witness till the day she died and um, an uncle of mine is two. So that was kind of in the background. Um, But that also, I think, is responsible. Like my grandma just talked to me all the time about aliens. And she had a gigantic box of Weekly World News magazines in her attic um, that I would just, whenever I would go over there, I would just sit and just page through Weekly World News.
0: Um, That would have been my dream as a kid. It
1: was really pretty (laughs) cool. Uh, Yeah. There's something really esoteric about the religion um, and very arcane and just like – um, there's a lot of magical realism to it and, and things like that that was interesting to me. Uh, I never believed it, um, but I could see its utility and, and kind of follow it. My dad was a Catholic, but he you know, stopped going to church when he was a teenager, um, so it didn't really inform it. I, went to a, I remember at one point my brother and sister got asked to go to a Sunday school thing, and I remember thinking, you know, I do feel kind of ostracized. With this, everybody was talking about, like, catechism and things that I was just like, what the hell are they talking about? I just know it's something that I don't know about. Um, so I thought it would be a good idea for me to go to the Sunday school class. Um, but the teacher told my mom that I asked too many questions, and <laughs> I didn't go back. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah.
0: uh, that is... Um one of several traits that we share. I was definitely the kid raising his hand all the time and asking questions. Mm-hmm. And some kids loved it because the teachers would get so off track and yeah. off focus that just, we'd burn the whole yeah, hour. and a nice like, little game. and <laughs> ask a question. Ask him about this. And you just kind of have like a Rolodex. You're yeah. so like, well, what about this? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, so I definitely – I get that and I've been told mm-hmm. that. And that's kind of a weird way to shame a kid for having questions. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, I mean, it, the I it was in like – some family's garage, and it was like my brother, my sister, me, and like two other kids. It was really informal, and um, I don't remember anything content-wise. I think there was a coloring book involved, but there, it, uh, I didn't get it. It didn't click, um, so I just never really had it. I was, I, I was a militant atheist for a while in high school uh, until that got boring even for me to listen to Um, And then I was agnostic and started reading a lot of um, existential philosophy uh, my sophomore year of high school and was just like going that route. Um, But now I I see the the value in the narratives that are there. Um, And we're at probably the first time ever where we have as humans the liberty to pick and choose the best that every culture, religion and philosophy paradigm has to offer and mix and match and find the thing that's perfect for us and uh, that's really cool (laughs) and unprecedented uh, and frustrating then when people are unwilling to uh, interrogate their their own beliefs you know i
0: it's honestly it's like you've opened my own brain a little bit just hearing the way that you're approaching these things because it's like i just want to talk about this stuff all the time which is quite literally why i have this set up and going because if we don't uh, got it's like being on a crashing plane and just everybody's pretending it's just not going down like guys we're are we not gonna yeah yeah, we're buckled in but like (laughs) are we not going to talk about what's going to happen like this is we all die so you've had it sounds like a fair amount of self uh, assessments introspection you've really dug into this on your own accord which is A refreshing new direction for this podcast because Mm. it's generally been people who were raised in a particular faith Mm. or particularly without one you know in the absence of one yeah so knowing that brief introduction and i want to unpack it way more to use that (laughs) phrase that i've been told i use too much uh it's valuable (laughs) yeah what do you think happens when we die
1: uh the same thing that happens before we're born yeah um I, I think it's nothing. Um, I don't know. And I won't probably. Um, So it's not of primary concern to me. It's not a question that that part of it I've spent a whole lot of time with. I I, I was into some super trippy theories in college about like uh, how much weight is lost in your brain and, Um, The altered states movie where the guy ate all the mushrooms and became a a monkey and and that kind of stuff. Um, So there there's something profoundly weird about reality that I'm just starting in the last year or two to see um, because it had been so materialist before that. Um, But, yeah, I think when you die, did you see that Keanu Reeves clip that was went viral earlier this week?
0: uh be more specific yeah
1: he uh was getting interviewed on colbert and colbert asked him what what do you think happens when we die no yeah uh tell so me more. colbert colbert goes so keanu tell me what do you think happens when you die and keanu takes a moment he thinks and he says the people that love you will miss you very much
0: Spoken like Keanu Reeves, yeah. I say that's yeah. that's him to a T. Mm-hmm.
1: It's exactly it's the perfect answer to that, that question. Is. Um, so maybe I'll go with that. I'll go with Keanu. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's it's elusive, it's mysterious, it's romantic, and it's just a little evasive. Yeah, and pithy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: Which is always nice. Brevity is key. I try to teach that to mm. high schoolers. I am keenly
0: aware of how much I will want to get to an idea and ramp up and ramp up and ramp up and like get further yes. and further revved up and then uh, never quite pull the like drive my therapist nuts for it <laughs> um so I will definitely take hold of the notion that you we're not gonna know necessarily yeah. but I find it interesting that you're really finding your way into a world that's a little less cut and dry yeah and, and-
1: I'd clarify too that like um, I'm not unconcerned with death because I I also at the same time I don't have any idea what's going to happen. I also firmly believe that every single thing in human life is made because of death. There'd be nothing if we didn't die. I don't think. I think all the structures and systems, politically, ideologically, everything in place is predicated upon the fact that yes, we are human beings with a finite lifespan. Um, and if, and when you look for that behind the structures too, then they start to make a lot of sense. That it's such a foundational building
0: block of what motivates us. Mm-hmm. That it's it it's unspoken and almost unknowable in in yeah. how fundamental it is to what we do.
1: Right, because, I mean, what's the what's the point of doing anything at all? I think that the point that humans have is to avoid death.
0: And not simply as a, uh, an antagonistic reaction to the inevitable end. That right. I think a lot of people in kind of a nihilistic approach to say well it's just evolution telling us to have more sex so we have more you know offspring to like well i don't think that's it there's a it's Mm -hmm. a fear it's that it's the unknown i think that i
1: would say that death precedes sex as a drive like you're gonna die so the best you can do is have offspring that share some of your dna um so you can live on at least a little bit yeah um like i don't know which one it i don't they're inseparable because we wouldn't have sex if we didn't have death. Um Yeah.
0: Like asking a fish what it's like to not be wet. It's just uh-huh, a, I, yeah. I, I, that's what all the hell I know. Water? Yeah. yeah. This is all that I can do. Right. So
1: it's that survival bias that we are sort of like baked into.
0: It doesn't it doesn't not concern you. So it's no. something that you're you're curious about. There's this black oh, yeah. box that we have that we're you're aware of it, you'll never mm-hmm. be able to in theory, you'll never be able to open the box, but at some point we all enter the box. Yeah. Not referring to a coffin, but, like, just the unknowing black box. And you're somebody who's willing to say, "It's whatever's in there must be important. to Like, whatever happens there, there's something there.
1: Mm-hmm. It, even if it's just a, a, an abstract sort of symbol of drive and motivation or a reason to— Get yourself out of bed. Sure. You know, Um, but I mean, I've also uh, I haven't in a couple of years now. They're under control, but had panic attacks like my first one was in sixth grade. I remember it very distinctly and um, periodically throughout the rest of my life. And those are all about death. Um, One of the things that stopped them for a while is that a friend told me that her therapist told her that nobody's ever died from a panic attack. And that worked for (laughs) me for a while until I was like, but wait a minute. Lots yeah. of people have died from heart attacks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just getting yeah. to that notion. Of like, well,
0: I suppose if yeah.
1: uh, she had a wait see, a minute. Yeah, but the semantics of it like helped me for a little bit at least. so yeah. that was good.
0: It's like nobody dies from skydiving; they die from their shoot nut. Yeah, opening. exactly. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, but those tricks of phrase can they can get you a little ways. Yeah, which is nice.
0: What, if you don't mind my asking, mm-hmm. what started? those panic attacks as sixth grade, I'm guessing that's kind of when you're uh, your real self-conscious, not uh, self-awareness but like your self-consciousness of like puberty and teenageness right. and like culture. yeah, was that just coming online that you're, like what
1: there's a distinct sort of developmental shift that occurs around that time where you move from the idea of everything, concrete reasoning, everything is black or white. And then you get to explore that or a little bit more <laughs> once you get into abstract thinking and sort of unpack the stuff. Un- there it is, one. <laughs> uh, unpack the stuff that is in there and sort of yeah, get acquainted, uh, make acquaintance with the gray area, I think. Uh, and I see in my own sixth grade students that I teach very a lot, a lot of developmental differences and rigidity of thinking and ability to sort of hold to simultaneously oppositional viewpoints, sort of in their head and and make sense of that in a dialectic sense you know um on a related
0: but tangential note um do you see (laughs) i always think of how intense it was for my peers to first get an idea of what a hypocrite was yeah and like the branding of like yeah but that person's a hypocrite like yeah, man, you're in sixth grade. You'll find out that we're all hypocrites. Is that a thing that you still see? Yeah, a ton. Uh, And a lot of this,
1: the thing that I've been hearing a lot, which has given me a lot to think about for next year and sort of how I I like to, the last couple of years, I've kind of reinvented some things, but I'm ready now. I feel like I'm at the stage where I need to like question all of my pedagogical assumptions and sort of redesign from the bottom up. Um, But I hear a lot of people saying that other people aren't, a good person, I hear that a lot, um, and I think that it's a it's a similar impulse that drives the hypocrite thing, um, because it assumes that there is a set of values that is universally good, or, um, and I know that they don't see the fact that there are universal because they can't <laughs> yet, you know, yeah. their brains can't have. Empathy, their prefrontal cortex is just like little buds, yeah, and they're just hanging there, but
0: just being surged with hormones yeah. and developmental, yeah. yeah.
1: So I, they do. It's they're such a firm uh, commitment to justice. Yeah, when you're that age too. I remember like bringing. A, I started misbehaving in fourth grade. Um, that was when I first started to like resist and question authority in a, a more assertive manner. Um, and I remember all the gym teachers at our school were women, and I didn't like gym. and I thought that maybe I'd be able to get out of it because if I told people that I wasn't comfortable with women being in the men's locker room. So I started a petition and I got a lot of people to sign it, and then <laughs> I <laughs> gave it to the to the teacher. Um, and then they got a male teacher's aid. they like hired a new person to be in there. so uh kevin hansen job creator yeah that's me (laughs) yeah i'm one of the 47 percent or the 53 percent is that what i would be yeah okay uh so so i oh i'm sorry so i guess like i was always super anxious um mm, i learned those thinking patterns from my family who i love and adore um but tends to run a little on the analytical side sure um but it's also a superpower Mm -hmm. um but i remember it six or seven years old uh for months and months i thought i I learned what a tumor was and was convinced that i had a tumor on my elbow because i was feeling this bump that was there and uh, i would always feel it and get myself worked up uh, so one time I like, it was like three in the morning and I couldn't sleep and I just knew that this was gonna be the day that um, I have to come clean about the fact that I had a tumor, I had to come out. Uh, so I was like looking at myself in the mirror and rubbing it and crying and my mom eventually comes into the bathroom. She's like, Kevin, what are you, what, what's wrong? And I said, I, I didn't wanna, I didn't want it to be true, you know, but I, I, I've got a tumor and it's on my elbow. And then I showed her and she said, Kevin, Pat's your elbow. <laughs> like, okay. So that happened, like, different things like that. Uh, sixth grade, uh, there, <laughs> it was, and it was, and that then I was fine. I mean, I was always a hypochondriac kid about that kind of stuff, though, too. Very, very anxious about um, medicine and whether something was, like, safe to eat. And I, I just was really... WebMD
0: must have been the worst thing to happen to you for a while. It
1: really, really was. And that was – there was about a decade in between school when I didn't have insurance. So it was just like, all right, let's see what WebMD says and then get myself psyched out on that but not even have like an outlet to be able to go to a doctor and have them tell you that I was just imagining it. But um, yeah, that first panic attack in sixth grade was because there was a – I had a shop teacher, Shop Schultz. Um, was my homeroom teacher in sixth grade. And he must have been, I don't know, anywhere from 60 to 105. He's just such an old-ass man. Uh, And he was a Shriner. Oh, my God. Uh, So he would, like, wear the fez, like, once or twice a year and had, like, pictures of him. But even better than the fact that he was a Shriner, he was a Tasmanian devil mascot, like, in a character impersonator at the Shriner circuses. He would dress up as Taz and his uh, license plate, I think was like shop Taz. So kind of think that he may have been like a, a proto furry. Yeah. Which is weird for me. I just kind of put that together now. So I'm going to have to unpack that at different time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. He.
0: Because think of a yeah. grown man in conservative Wisconsin right. in the, you know, late eighties, early nineties, Saying, Mm -hmm. I really... I gotta bring something to this organization. I do love dressing up as the Tasmanian Devil. I've already got the costume. Yeah, (laughs) like, he's... Every, nobody else wants to do, I, 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 I guess I, guess I yeah. can wear the, you know, i got a vanity plate. Right. Like, holy shit, the yeah. number of deliberate choices to get to that point are There are so
1: many branches, and I have no idea what the first one would have been. Maybe that's a guy dropped. who
0: just really knew who he was and just really had a sense of self.
1: Yeah, I, I hope. I, I try to assume positive intent, so I'm going to go with that.
0: I like that. Yeah
1: uh but yeah so since it was a shop they had desk drawers but i'm like oh great i've got this teacher for homeroom which is like the one class you have every day and it's always i don't know did you have homeroom at your school um or like advisory or something yeah
0: kind of that there'd be like one kind of hub around it but there was a whole lot of other yeah
1: yeah and we've got that at our school too and it's always like we've got a structure for it that like we talk about but it's just it becomes like this catch-all thing for everything so i I knew as a sixth grader, I'm like, well, I'm going from having one teacher all day long to having seven teachers. And this homeroom teacher is sort of supposed to be like my home base, like my fifth grade teacher Mm -hmm. was. Um, So when I found him to be so... Not repellent <laughs> is the wrong word, <laughs> but like I just had no, and I, I had no misconception that I would ever have any sort of relationship with this person. You may adult as well in have been a life. giraffe. Yeah, like you just, yeah. There was nothing you could nothing, relate to. Nothing was yeah. there. Uh, shop was something I had zero interest in for a variety of reasons. Uh, foremost, the fact that like when I really wanted a chemistry set when I was like eight years old, I got like a tool set instead. And I think it was some sort of enforcement of heteronormativity on me. I was a weird little kid. Which is weird yeah.
0: because at that time, it's not like scientists would have been seen. That's right. what the women yeah, do. This like, is a feminine thing. Science, yeah.
1: you know, that's what they always say about it. It's No, it's the exact opposite that yeah. women are having to prove every day that it's like a, a field that's tough. Yeah, positional. that's and, just
0: that's got to be right. like a midwestern norm of like, well, there was a sale a sale on like Binford tools. Yeah, or...
1: I don't know, but I, it always just left a sore tool taste in my mouth until I started like being you know, like, oh no, it's kind of I like to do things like this. But um, so yes, there was locks in all the drawers. So I saw a lock, and there was a paper clip. And I always bend paper clips. I still do. Uh, I shouldn't, but I just break them and waste them. Nervous habit, man. It's just you want to get that energy out. Just gotta do something. You gotta fidget. Uh I should have gotten a spinner. I did have the cube, but the spinners. Oh. Ugh, okay. that was tough. Um, but yeah, so I jammed the paperclip in there trying to pick the lock to show off to this kid. Uh, we'll call him Marshall, cause that was his name. And I didn't like him. Uh, so I'm like, hey, check this out. And I was trying to like pick the lock and show him. And then the paperclip got stuck and I couldn't get it out. And my hands started to get super sweaty cause I was freaking out. So that made it even worse. <laughs> and then eventually I uh, Marshall's like, oh, you're gonna get in trouble. <laughs> and I said, no, nah, only if you tell. And then he said, well, I'm gonna, cause I don't want to get blamed on it. So then I asked for a pass and I left class. And that's when, like, the first recognizable panic attack started of, like, feeling like I floated to the bathroom, like I floated into the bathroom and then went into a stall and then cried in there until somebody, I don't even remember how it ended, but somebody eventually was like, hey, is everybody okay in here? And then that sort of, like, shook me out of it enough. Um, and then I went and I told him what happened. Um and I got a detention from him, but the detention was scheduled for the day that I was starting my first job as a paper boy. Oh. So I told him I wasn't able to do it because I, I'm starting this job. And he said, "A job is a good thing for a young man to have. You can do your detention tomorrow."
0: That a yeah. bit of a Ron Swanson yeah. kindred moment. Of, yeah, I,
1: I guess. Yeah, okay. If Ron Swanson was hiding a Tasmanian devil thing instead of the saxophone, Duke. Yeah, yeah. I'd say Duke Silver. Right.
0: Um, so. This is all pointing to the fact that you're somebody who's very – your self-awareness is a gift. And a curse. And a curse, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. that it's – you You can never really shut that light off. Um, is that something you have to struggle with? I mean not that you have to, but is that something that you've found you have to deal with as a burden and a blessing?
1: Yeah. Um, and depending upon the life stage, it – varies dramatically between which one it is, but it's – I've been deliberately working now on how to be more um, present of mind but, like, not the kind of present that I am usually because I'm really, really constantly aware and, like, um, consciously evaluating stimuli and things that are coming into me from conversations with people and recalibrating and sort of, like, constantly – sometimes i would pretend that i had like a terminator visor sometimes or whatever and could like read get these readouts of human communication because for somewhere along the line i picked up a really like building block structural way of blocking and grouping things together um so yeah i mean it's tough to be in the moment and this mostly comes causes me the most problems when it comes to, you know, interactions with other people. Uh, Cause you gotta get out of that headspace sometimes and you have to be with that other person. Um, And that's sort of what, um, that, what makes you say that question comes in handy. (laughs) This idea of, it was only within the last couple, last year maybe, that the idea of like really coming from this place of curiosity um, was going to be of service to me but was also something that would be beneficial for other people, and it seemed like a way to maximize my usefulness uh, in the world, which has only recently become a concern for me, but um, I just sort of made a, I was like, I gotta I gotta start doing things with more skill, and I need to start like trial and error, like A-B testing reactions and like really um, that, pr- process of interrogation again like why why do you think this why are you doing this what what does make you say that why are you why do you have an opinion about something that you don't know anything about why are you being defensive about something that you agree with um and just like building in that pause to be like oh wait no you're on autopilot, so recognize that script that's there and then ask yourself, is this serving a useful purpose? And if so, then good, continue to experiment and reevaluate on occasion. Uh, If not, though, you need to be willing to put that all on the table and erase it and and try your best to rewrite it with something. Well,
0: first off, I think it's laudable that—laudable? Yeah, is to be lauded. It's commendable that you (laughs) would want to do that because I think that there are a lot of people whose knee-jerk reaction in that same set of circumstances would be, fuck it, we're all going to die anyway. Like, I'll just do what I want and, like, I'm going to have another helping of whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. that's certainly... But that's
1: the ultimate reason to do it because we're all going to die and since we're all going to die and that's one of the only absolutes and we'll never know what's going to come after, the only thing I know for sure is that I better make the most out of it while I'm here and after thinking about it and reading stories upon stories and, um, you know, looking at world religions and philosophers and different things, it, it, the the consensus of the best human thinkers that have written their stuff down and has lasted uh, seems to be that, like, there is a utilitarianism, like, at the heart of world religions and this do unto others, the golden rule, all of these things, the tithing. There's a social responsibility that's sort of inherent in us as a species. So it seems to me that the best way to maximize. It's kind of like I always like to play video games the way I thought I was supposed to be playing them. (laughs) Like it would, to like maximize it and sort of like. And I always liked really super hard games too that I would have to learn like the process and figure out the best way to play it. And I always knew that there was. Always sort of like a better way to do something within Mm it. Um, There may not be a best way, but I think there's always a better way. So, like, looking for ways to be constantly improving how you can support other people's human project seems like the ultimate point of it all. (laughs) Yeah, I'm fascinated with the concept
0: of boundary breaking, where you specifically go to where you're not supposed to be able to, but I also am very much wanting to canonically mm-hmm. do okay well what do i do to go through mass effect to make sure i'm doing it in the proper order and getting the right things not necessarily to have a paragon run of it but right. just to make sure that i'm not i don't want to miss anything that i can't mm-hmm. go back to and then get you know yeah like,
1: it's a narrative uh motivation yeah. i think because like i could give two shits about uh, like the accomplish the achievements and stuff like that people that I remember, yeah, people bragging about their gamer score. I'm like, don't do that for so many reasons. That's
0: not the point. (laughs) I'm fascinated with deleted scenes on DVDs when that was a thing. And I love the idea of... Uh, directors cuts of movies or like fan edits where they take all of the Zion crap out of the Matrix sequels and it's just the Matrix de-Zionized like right all right that narratively is a distinct thing that's not the canonical thing from them Mm -hmm. but I'm still interested in what that is you know like
1: it's an adaptation of a story and everything is an adaptation of a story every story is we we can't help it we're we can't help but only get ideas that are inspired by the ideas that other people had before us um yeah, so I mean, it's just um, the what I was thinking with that. There was something with the Matrix that that brought up, but
0: Zion levels of telling a story, canon, um, yeah, gamer scores missing out. Yeah, on Yeah, so
1: maybe it, it, the boundaries too. Oh, there you because go. Because yeah. I think that the boundary breaking is interesting because I think that that's one of that's a useful tool in. Um, it's a useful thought experiment for what it would be like if we were to come up with a story that wasn't based on the ideas that somebody else had mm-hmm. um, It would just be bizarre and irreconcilable like with our model of things. It went like when you fall through the floor in a video game and you're in like this upside down cloud world of game glitch. What do you think of? <sighs>
0: It's something I've kind of been pulling at the thread a little bit but I haven't really gotten around to asking you specifically. Yeah. Do you think that we are in any way an eternal being experiencing a temporary or subjective experience? Do you think that there's some kind of soul there? Or do you think from what you've uncovered so far, do you think that there's something beyond the human experience?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm toying through now. Um I...
0: And you'll have it figured out in about two months. Yeah, like, yeah,
1: I'll get back to you. You know, I'll send you a text or something. I'll figure out a pithy bumper sticker way to say it. Um, so, you, I've been situating a lot of stuff in like the philosophical canon lately. Uh, and I, I think that, that that sort of soul, like that um, Platonic essentialism of truth and being in like one distilled center at things um i think it's based off of a pre-copernican interpretation of reality um similar to the way that a lot of our scientific materialism seems to be reflecting the zeitgeist of simple machinery and there are four humors There's yeah. water air yep. fire and everything's dirt. a component part and yeah. they're separate um, and that was the prevailing theory for very until the 20th century when I think technically it would probably be Heidegger that came in and like was the first to sort of resist that materialist approach and sort of there, there is no there's no reason to assume that when I think he uses a hammer. Uh, he talks about how when you've got a a hammer just laying there on a table you can describe it it's something but when you're using a hammer like the idea becomes way more abstract because you can't have a hammer without nails you can't have a hammer without a use Um, but you don't notice that abstraction until the hammer breaks and all of a sudden you can't use it for anything anymore Um, and that reveals less that these things are parts and that your yellow bile and your green bile are separate, but they're parts of the same system. Um, so it's a more holistic approach to that. And that's kind of where my thinking with um, the idea of a soul and, and stuff has taken me a little bit too. I've always liked the Jungian collective unconscious model for that. Like I, I do think that since everything has to be iterative on something that somebody said before, because those are the only ways we learn words then you know you've got to sort of also end up down that path kind of with a soul like you're going to improve upon that idea um but again it's sort of like i don't think i know it doesn't mean
0: it's not worth asking yeah no
1: it's definitely worth
0: asking and whether or not i didn't ask to be born yeah you're here man you gotta Mm -hmm. you don't have to solve it but like right this unfinished puzzle is sitting in your house yeah like yeah it will always be there until the last day.
1: Right. Yeah. And there's a logical end date to when you can finish that puzzle.
0: And what I've said oftentimes now in my personal life and have credited past guest Canute on this podcast and I think I talked about this when we had dinner a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago that it's I'm I'm tuning much more into the notion that it's not about whether or not my compass is wrong or if there's some problem with the machinery in my head it Mm -hmm. might just be (laughs) my deal my problem lately and by lately I mean the last 15 or so years might just be that you got to learn how to be comfortable in your own skin yeah like I've really found in the last like two weeks or so I've been genuinely very happy like the largest uh overall sense of happiness of like yeah, no, everything's kind of great, but hmm. like I can recognize displeasure or dissatisfaction in other people's worlds around me. I right. can see, uh, you know, I can recognize and feel the, you know, the uh, compassion for it. But it's interesting to find myself in these moments, knowing simultaneously everything is great, everything is wonderful. I feel great. I'm healthy. I'm enjoying the moment. I'm happy, mm-hmm. and yet that. Will pass, you know, and that yeah. it's the old parable of the king having the inscription on the ring of "this too shall pass." Mm-hmm. But,
1: well, and the I don't have you done any like deep dives into the sort of Buddhist traditions and so, like the four not noble truths
0: in a substantial way since college. Okay, but I mean that was. It, it felt at the time very much disingenuous for me to look into Buddhism in any substantial mm-hmm. way as a personal lifestyle because it felt very much like I would just be copying to some hippie lifestyle. Right. Whereas now as a 35-year-old father of a toddler who's driving mm-hmm. me nuts all weekend – hi, kiddo uh, – <laughs> meditating has become so integral to staying calm and keeping my shit together, not just as a – way to tamp down the noise which was oftentimes done just by taking a slug of bourbon previously yeah. just like well yeah that numbs it's the faster. senses it's a it's a trick it's a it's a cheap card yeah. trick as opposed to doing the real thing and not unlike what you talked about with Heidegger and the hammer and I think we talked about this previously too really this is just a, a compartmentalization of our dinner from doing. so yeah. yeah. uh, <laughs> but it, the idea that meditation I can look at it as one thing and then I can go through it and commit the act of it and as soon as my reminder or, you know, timer or whatever the impetus is to get out of it goes mm-hmm. off and I find myself kind of falling back into my own headspace, I always think, oh, I was really out there for a while. Like, yeah. there, there is something that is inherently indescribable to it that you can't yeah. quite get like,
1: – it's ephemeral, I, right? Yeah, and I don't know if what I've been doing is meditating. <laughs> um i've yet to have a clear description i guess like i hear people saying like "Oh, well, you you should recognize your thoughts as they arise and then let them go like clouds and then another thought will arise and then you greet that thought and then you let that go again like another wisp of cloud and, um <laughs> but i think that for me the value is not in The emptiness of that headspace but in the process of shelving those ideas that come and then you can dismiss them gets you then faster to the ideas that you have that you can't so easily dismiss and then puts you into – it's about the thinking that happens in between the empty moments and not so much about the emptiness of it. It's
0: the – symbolism in my mind wants to go to like um, the Native American practice of shucking the the um, the rice where you, mm-hmm. you lift it up, you toss it up in the boat, and the wind takes the chaff, and you're left with the stock. And like as you have these, the kind of white noise of all these thoughts come yeah. up, and you just kind of let them go off and evaporate, what you're left with then are these core things that you're trying to deal with and unpack.
1: Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of noise. You got yeah. to find the signal through, and it's tough.
0: All this being said, I promise I'm not trying to get you in a gotcha moment here. <laughs> so, if we're not, what is your stance on
1: ghosts? So, I believe there's another whole side to like my belief system, though, too. That's, uh, it's
0: so fun for me to ask this. That's why yeah, I want to get Yeah, That into is that. like
1: deeply, I'm the same way, e- deeply bizarre. And there, there's something. Um, I had a like I said I wasn't religious so I didn't really have a spiritual it's not even like the millennial I'm spiritual but I wouldn't say I'm religious Um, I was neither <laughs> uh, and I'm just now sort of starting to recognize that there were spiritual moments that are forming a narrative that but I mean I had my spiritual experiences in the church of the American dorm room mm-hmm. so it uh was in a slightly different context but Um, There are certain revelations within a spiritual experience that makes it really tough to ignore the weirdness of it all. Um, So ghosts, like any sort of unexplained phenomenon, UFO, rods, grays, everything, uh, I don't know, I think they're all the same thing, and I don't know what it is. Um, If it's a psychic phenomenon that, like— pops into our heads and that's what it's driven by, or if they're expressions of the collective unconscious, if there are energy fields and things like that. Um, yeah, like my, my dad's seen a ghost several times, and other, it's the same one that other people have seen at a theater in our hometown. There's, I believe there's a little girl with a doll, and there's an older man with overalls, and the theater in my hometown was built in an old canning factory. Um, they had tons of accidents, of course, during the Industrial Revolution, like Upton Sinclair style. Seriously, uh, yeah. Uh, so there was like, you know, this canning works, and they turned it in. They ripped it. They gutted the thing and turned it into like a local civic center auditorium thing. Uh, and numerous people have seen these uh, these ghosts. I also think that there's something to the fact that so often ghosts are reported in theaters. And as a former theater kid, eh, you know, we we like to make things interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think that there's certain different propensities that we have too for seeing you it. these kids have a flair for the dramatic. Yeah, yeah, almost, almost.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I I will definitely I see more shit when I'm tired. I'll say that. Oh yeah, you know. Different than I've had visual distortions from stress headaches before. Mm-hmm. Those are one thing. And just being tired and seeing shit out of the corner of your eyes is a whole other thing too. Like that is a yeah. thing that's I can genuinely – like if I stay up a little extra, I'll start to see a little more out of the corner of my vision. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean – man, I really – I do wish that there was some unifying thing because it felt so – neat and compact and so just like oh that would be perfect and that's the way it is if it was just oh it's a. it anytime you see a werewolf or a vampire or something it's because the weather program didn't go right or the right. software didn't go right for this like mm-hmm. the idea that it that's be... why that
1: glitch in the matrix is is such like a um tantalizing prospect yeah yeah, yeah. Like and a, mandela they're... effects too yeah. that's oh. it's seeing bears yeah mm-hmm. yeah
0: um i actually had i was very emphatically on the side of the jaws one do you know what i'm talking about i hadn't heard that one so in the movie i think it's moonraker uh one of the old james bond movies yeah. jaws is the guy you know eight feet tall with oh, a big metal gotcha. mouth Got it. and the gag was he meets this woman and they smile at each other and the big bad guy goes off and runs off with her and they get married and it's kind of like his oddball Mois from the movie mm-hmm. like he exits out and that was his thing it's like, oh he gets a foil who's like this weird little Swiss blonde girl and in my memory the joke was that she smiled at him and had braces and it was like oh he's got this big metal mouth she's got this little mouth of metal uh. and they go off together and then you know 25 years down the line you go back and look at the movie and no there's no braces but I could I would have sworn on my life Right. that she had braces, no braces. That's the whole point of the gag, was that yeah. he meets this lovely little woman who's got a mouthful of metal like him.
1: That's the point of the joke. Right, It's not there. Yeah. I imagined it. Are there other people with yes. that particular one? So it's it's got to be the same mechanism as like Urban Legends and things yeah. like that. Yeah, 100%. Um, where what it is revealing is sort of the total valuability of memory yes and just like the the realization that you just you know there's many things in my life that I remember one way and
0: my mom told me recently she had listened to a podcast and I forget exactly what it was but it had to do with memory and Brian Mm -hmm. Williams of all people when he was dismissed from AB or NBC for Lying about being on a a, a helicopter that was part of – the way – the thrust of the podcast was basically that he he genuinely believed that he was there. Like as he started to tell a story of this incident over his life – his proximity to it put him closer and closer into it until he created this kind of Ouroboros of memory where he's feeding into it.
1: Well, because we're like, and there's been, I don't know the neuroscience, I'm an English teacher. but There's (laughs) been, uh, I remember I do a neuroscience unit with my sixth graders actually. So I had to like become more fluent in that. Um, But one of the things that I remember was this concept that, Memories, when when you have a memory, you're not remembering the event. You're remembering the last time you remembered that event. And then you're remembering the last time, which is, have have you... You're calling up that mental Yeah, have you come in contact with, like, EMDR and, like, training? And it's, like, something... I've never had it with my therapist, but I know it's something with, like, flashing lights and sound. Yeah, I've not experienced it, but I'm vaguely familiar with it. So there's something, and I haven't either, and I was really very skeptical of it until like, I, I dug around a little bit and I guess what that, it's sort of like a hack that's in the brain where by reprocessing the memory in light of this new stimulation it creates a new neural pathway that disrupts the old memory okay so if you are using it to reprocess a a traumatic event or experience you're able to then overwrite that previous negative thinking pattern into something that is more positive and then over a series of iterations and sessions like eventually you solidify this new connection. Um, and it's sort of, that's what made it made sense to me thinking that like memory is, it just gets, it's a copy of a copy. It's a multiplicity. Yeah. It's oh, the when stupid you said, Michael Keaton.
0: I think you said e- EM, <laughs> M- yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Do you mean MDMA?
1: No, EMDR. Like uh, MDMA is probably another great therapy with a lot of lights and sounds. Well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, it's like a light therapy that um, you... If you ever look around at my therapist's office, like um, some of the other rooms, if you walk past them, you'll see something that almost looks like if you're at a play or something where they've got the open captioning going where somebody's like typing along on a little screen. It almost looks like that. Um, But there's different lights. And then there's like different ways you can do it with. It's something to do with your eye movement and your eyes tracking different directions. Um, is using a similar area in the brain as the area that, like, calls back memories. So you're, like, occupying that at the same time with your eyes so it allows you to, like, record over it when your brain isn't looking. Like, it's a weird little trick to, like – and it's fairly recent, um, and I from I didn't read the white papers, but it and seems s- to be in peer-reviewed journals. <laughs> yeah, that is
0: so seductive. I want to find out yeah. everything about that now. Yeah, uh, and that's not well. And I was saying MDMA. That's I think a similar notion behind that of uh, PTSD and soldiers mm-hmm. coming home. That they're using that technique then to okay, let's just flood the system with happy chemicals to basically yeah. allow you to have any just smallest amount of introspection for this to be able to process this mm-hmm. to basically
1: same with probably like electrostim too yeah yeah and there's actually
0: i from what i understand a lot of benefit to yeah. electroconvulsive therapy that mm-hmm. you know got a bad they've rap they've it. it quite a bit yeah, yeah <laughs> it's not exactly bite down on this bar right. and that's it um Kevin, you have been absolutely awesome yeah. to share all this stuff. We haven't talked a whole lot about death. If you'd like, we could certainly set up another one in the future. But I have to say, for what we've talked about here, this is my jam. This is exactly cool. why I love talking about this I stuff. I think
1: death is at the heart of it all. Like, yeah. that's that's the connection, though, too. Like, because none of it would be there, I still think, you know, if we didn't die.
0: <laughs> well, anything that you want to put out there to the world in kind of a not summation but Mm -hmm. closing moments of like I always say if you just want to like recommend a restaurant or anything that you're doing or just like anything that you're particularly into lately of like everybody check out this meditation guide or like anything that you want to put out there to yeah the little...
1: well first I want to thank you for the podcast I look forward to listening to the rest of them uh, and making my way through that and I'll just uh, end with a quote that or a paraphrase from Vonnegut that I've been using in some of my classes when we've talked about like these models of living and using stories for that which has been a big preoccupation of mine so it goes um, so it goes but also uh, I don't know if you've read I forget which book it's from but there's something where he's like narrating. An experience of like watching a bunch of babies so he's, he's talking and he says something like uh, babies welcome to the world uh, it's confusing, it's loud it's fast, it's slow, it's boring it's fun um, but babies, I mean there's only one thing after all of my years on this earth that I'm sure of that I can teach you and god damn it babies, you gotta be kind
0: we'll leave it there thanks Kevin
1: thank you